Hey this is Sayyam Botani and you're listening to Chai Time Data Science a podcast for data science enthusiasts where i interview practitioners researchers and calculators about their journey experience and talk all things about data science hello and welcome to the 75th interview on ctds.show also the 100th interview i ever done in this episode i completed the dream of having interviewed my heroes from fast ai by interviewing rachel thomas on the podcast rachel thomas is the co-founder of fast ai and is currently director at the center for applied ethics at the data institute at the university of san francisco this episode is really part 2 of my blog interview with rachel so please check that out this episode covers three broad th- three broad themes we talk about top down learning and what does it take to create a course or material that follows the top down te- teaching approach we discuss the topic that rachel is currently involved in ethics and biases i ask rachel many questions of how can we do better how can we address this team better something that all of us have been made aware through her efforts and how can we incentivize someone to contribute to this we also discuss project building and blogging rachel has written amazing two amazing blog posts which again you can find in the show notes please check them out this episode really addresses a few very important topics and i try to ask a few important questions that i've been made aware of through fast.ai so i hope we all get to learn something about ethics ethics in ai via this episode for now here's the conversation please enjoy the show everyone i am honored to be talking to my guru our hero yes our hero rachel thomas rachel thank you so much for joining me on the podcast oh, thank you sanyam i'm really happy to be here i am honored to be talking to you uh, fast ai is my hero you both are my heroes so <laughs> thanks thanks for joining me oh you're welcome yeah no, i wish i wish we could be doing this in person but i'm i'm glad we're online <laughs> maybe next time maybe yes. next year <laughs> Okay so I I want to there'll be a lot of themes that I'll I'll be asking you about definitely but I want to start by talking about your journey and top down uh, top down learning how did you learn uh, during your university days uh, did you follow any top down approaches when was the first time you learned something in the quote and quote top down fashion Yeah so I am I mostly my university was mostly kind of a traditional bottom up um uh, approach um in hindsight I didn't recognize this at the time but two projects that kind of stand out uh, to me uh one was in my computer science algorithms course the professor on the first day gave us these uh really complicated scheduling problems and so uh mine was a uh, and we were doing these in teams but you know students ranking like 
which classes they wanted to take and then figuring out like which size room and which time to offer it and kind of all the the conflicts that proposes and we were told to to come up with a, a solution to optimize uh, the scheduling and we had like six weeks and it was something hmm. that uh we tried all sorts of things, but you would always kind of come back to like, oh, this seems like to check everything. You would need to be doing something n factorial. Like this isn't uh, isn't possible to optimize one hundred percent. And then, kind of the day we turned them in, he was like, "Let me tell you about NP complete problems," um, and that was that was a very <laughs> memorable experience because um, I had not heard of NP complete problems and was like, "Oh," but I, I feel like that really gave me kind of like a deep understanding of like, "Oh yeah," like I see uh, kind of how tricky this is by having kind of just wrestled with this one uh, one NP complete problem for for six weeks, uh, searching searching for a way to optimize it. Um, so that was that was a fun project and a, another uh, memorable one that I yeah in hindsight felt like was kind of a a, a top down approach was in my uh, I minored in linguistics and I took a, a semester long class on syntax and the project for the entire semester was to come up with a set of rules governing the English language okay. um, and again, again that's something where. <laughs> You know, we kind of started, you know, simple building them. And then each week, you know, the professor would have counter examples of like, you know, these examples violate your rules. Um, and I think that, you know, both those projects had particularly kind of frustrating moments along the way, but they ended up, I feel like being very, uh, very memorable and really kind of helping me learn things in a more experiential way. Which is, which is true to anything uh, that follows a top-down learning approach. You don't realize it after, you only realize after you're done. With yes, the, yes. <laughs> so... Speaking about uh, teaching in this fashion, uh, can you give us an insight about behind the scenes at FASTI? Now it's an amazing course. Everyone really loves it. But I'm sure there are a lot of challenges with uh, creating a course that follows this approach. And uh, I think you might have defaulted also. You mentioned this to the bottom up teaching approach. How, how did you find the oh, balance? Yes. Yes. So it's definitely something where, I mean, just because I was in school for... I don't know, over 20 years, yeah. <laughs> primarily learning bottom up, like it, I definitely default into that. And um, I know particularly with like, the numerical linear algebra class, I had to be very intentional about like, no, I'm trying to do this in the reverse order and kind of start with these more complex things and then get to the smaller pieces. Um, and so it is something where I think uh, Jeremy and I sometimes kind of have to remind each other, of, no, like top down would be, would be this way uh, because it, uh, it takes more work to do things top down. And it, it, I think for many of us, it's kind of not our inclination, uh, but it is, yeah, it is, it can be time consuming and you have to be kind of conscious that that's, that's the goal you're going for. Uh, so you've taught many courses, uh, the NLP one, the linear algebra one, uh, now you're teaching ethics, which is your favorite if you had to pick one. And uh, do you think it's possible to extend top down learning approach to other topics of math to make them uncool as well? Um, so to answer the second part, yes, um, I think it is. I, I, I definitely think it would uh, take me more time to think about, you know, given a particular example, how to do it. Um, I think ethics is currently my favorite just because that's, uh, that's what I think about most these days. Um, and I think it's, it's also, it's so urgent uh, kind of for, for all of us to be thinking about ethics. Uh, we'll, we'll talk more about that soon, but uh, this is a question from the AMA. What would you change about how math is taught in the U.S.? And what is the best way for someone who's feeling that their math education is inadequate to fulfill their uh, concept needs or uh, the conceptual needs? Um, yeah, so I mean, I, th I think uh, for, for many of us, and it's not the fault of our teachers that this is kind of how math is taught. Um, uh, uh, 
uh, math in the U.S. is taught in this very uh, vertical way where each year really kind of builds on the year before it, which is common in a, in a um, bottom-up approach. Yeah. Um, and a problem with that is if you get, you know, one bad math teacher, it's really hard to recover. And so a lot of, a lot of people I talk to can even kind of pinpoint the year that they lost interest in math, mm. you know, and they had, you know, some, and sometimes it's not even a teacher, but maybe you have something going on in your life circumstances. And if you have a bad year in math, often you can't recover because this is, Kind of another failing of the the bottom up approach is because everything is building, uh, you know, in this very sequential way. You don't you don't have the building blocks you need. Um, so I'd really uh, would want uh, want people to get away from that more, um, and bring in more of kind of the the patterns and playfulness of math that can exist. Um, and a few a few examples, particularly at the high school level. Um, I think a lot of what's taught in discrete math, if you study computer science in college, where you're getting to do you know combinations and permutations and kind of some of the counting problems. I think that's really fun, and I think it's a very different flavor of what you see in kind of the algebra calculus sequence. And I wish I wish everybody got to see that and at a younger age. Um, so I think I would want to incorporate more more of that. I also think probability is crucial. I think probability is really important for, for even just being able to understand the role world. And we've seen that with, uh, you know, with issues around like election forecast when, uh, you know, people saying oh, like, oh, there's an 80% chance this candidate will win. And, you know, people interpreting that as like, oh, they're going to win by 80% mm -hmm. or, you know, get 80% of the vote. Um, so I would love to see probability incorporated a, at a younger age. Also linear algebra, which I, you know, I love in linear algebra. Um, and it kind of makes me sad that it, uh, many school, many colleges in the US, it's not taught till after calculus. And I think a lot of people kind of get bogged down in the calculus sequence. And so then they, they never get to, to see linear algebra, which is just, just super useful. Um, so in addition to kind of incorporating more uh, bottom-up approach, or sorry, top-down approaches. Um, I, I would also like to see these topics kind of brought in earlier, and I think they could help with some of that uh, feeling like even if you don't understand one of the topics at the time, you can still learn and do well with the next topic. I think one of the really cool ways, I think it was either you or Jeremy who had shown, uh, maybe while implementing uh, attention attentional layers, that here's how it looks in mathy terms versus here's how it looks in code. That that can also be a like big yes, motivator. Yes. Maybe I, I'm coming from the hacker community, so I yeah, I'm yeah, biased. yeah. No, definitely, yeah. Like writing it out in code really is a, is a great way to to test if you understand it, and often yeah feels easier uh, or simpler than the math uh, the math approach or equation approach. Definitely. So jumping forward to someone who's created a good project, someone from FastA communities uh, who shared, who has shared their uncool story of building a project. Our work gets highlighted a lot, thanks to you. We have this small uh, FastA Twitter community that is uh, very helpful towards each other in highlighting our work. But how can we make a wider uh, machine learning community, the wider research community that might not be able to appreciate a farmer's work who has never coded but has been able to implement an application as much as they should? Um, I mean, so I think, I think we're seeing that change some. Like, I definitely think things have improved a lot from, uh, say, compared to, like, 2012, 2013. Um, I think the, the field has opened up, and I think I think even kind of the, the major companies have, have shown more interest in kind of uh, uh, offbeat projects. Um, and so... Um, there's still there's still more work to be done, but I think that there have been some positive changes, and I you know I hope Fast AI has been kind of a part of that of of, of um, 
uh, trying to to change and broaden the focus. I'm biased, but I'll say it definitely has been. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you. <laughs> so, uh, if if you were to pick a uh, underrated side of fast AI uh, that you wish gets more coverage, uh, what what would that be? Uh, so two, um, and you're going to be very familiar with this, but I think in the, the broader AI community, I think there's often a perception that fast AI is just for beginners of like, oh, this is just a way for beginners to get started. And so I, I wish that more people knew that uh, like the fast AI library is state of the art and the fast AI course takes you to the state of the art and it's not just for beginners and it can be used in, in research and in production. Um, so that's kind of a, I feel like, key misconception. Um, and then related to that, also getting out the word about the FastAI software library, because um, I think we're, we're best known for the course, and some people kind of think that that's all there is. I'm a bad student because I've never really completed part two of the course, but it's, <laughs> it's so rich that I've always been a student, and I think I'll stay a student for a few more years. Oh, that's great. <laughs> Uh, now, uh, switching to another topic uh, that you're currently involved in ethics and uh, broadly speaking biases, uh, you decided to start FastA after realizing that deep learning was exclusive. You shared a few stories. How far would you say that FastA has reached uh, in solving that mission? Um, yeah, I think I think we've uh, we've definitely made progress, um, and I think we have given kind of a, an on ramp to to many people that that. Uh, might not previously have had one, um, although there's certainly a lot more more work to do. Um, and I think there, there also still really remains uh, kind of the issues around just cultural perception and a lot of people, it just never occurs to them that, that deep learning could be something they could be involved with or that they could have something to contribute to. Um, and, I, and I think this also relates to a lot of the uh, cultural perceptions around math or computer science mm. and people thinking that it's not for them or that they don't have the right background to be a part of it. Um, and then we also kind of have all the, the biases within the industry that can make it harder for people uh, with, with non-traditional backgrounds to get hired. Yeah. Um, and that's something so that kind of even, even when you've given the on-ramp and, uh, uh, you know, I think we have students from FastAI that are incredibly qualified and experts uh, that kind of getting, getting others to recognize that and hiring can still um, sometimes be an obstacle. Yes, to, to convince someone that you have 15 years of experience in AI, you just need to be on like, you know, job intern himself. <laughs> yeah. Um, so was there a specific point uh, that led you to switching to working in a full-time capacity for applied ethics or uh, any any incident or any story that, that helped, um, led you to was, this? No, it was really, it was kind of a gradual transition. I found myself just spending more and more time thinking about ethics and writing about it and giving talks about it. Um, and so you know, sometimes I refer to it as kind of my, my side hobby that took over my life. Um, but it was, uh, it was never uh, until I, until I got offered the position with USF, although at that point I was already devoting so much time to ethics that it was like, Oh, this, this totally makes sense. And is really natural. Um, but it was just, it was kind of this topic I couldn't stop thinking about. Um, you've highlighted so many uh, biases that you had unfortunately faced uh, in industry or otherwise. Why is it important that we start looking at them right now, especially in AI where uh, most of the apps aren't even ready for the real world? 
Oh, um, yes, because I mean, so we have seen from stuff that's been deployed, all these really, really alarming uh, repercussions. And I think, you know, in the United States, I think there's a lot of really great conversation happening now, particularly around racism and white supremacy. Um, and we're seeing, and this is something that uh, people have been warning about for years of, you know, how facial recognition can be used to surveil protesters. Um, this is not a new issue. And uh, something I try to mention uh, when I teach is, uh, there was a black man, Freddie Gray, who was killed in Baltimore a few years ago. And during the protest after after his murder, um, police used facial recognition to identify protesters, which I think is incredibly alarming. And I think that those sorts of concerns are uh, really heightened now. Um, and that's uh, that's kind of just one example. But these uh, this technology has very profound uh, real world impact that also is uh, incredibly intertwined with uh, with bias and race and power and kind of how these technologies are used. Makes sense. Um, so Rizal, you made all of us, at least Farsi students aware about the biases and uh, the ethical responsibility that we, we should hold, but how can we make a person go the extra mile? Uh, sure, you're aware of it. Uh, you, uh, you know the biases that exist, but how do you take the extra step to make sure that it doesn't happen under your watch? Yeah, so there's, um, I mean, so I, don't, if, I don't know that you can, you can't, you can't make somebody uh, who, who is uh, perhaps resistant. I think there are many people out there that uh, want to do the right thing and, and really care about the world and wanting to do good. And so in many cases, I think giving people knowledge or giving people concrete tools they can use. And for this, I really like the, the Markula Center has a tech ethics toolkit of uh, kind of practices you can implement in your, your company. Uh, one of those is doing like ethical risk sweeps. And so kind of taking this idea from cybersecurity of really trying to proactively look for, for ethical risk and, and to build that into your process. Um, so there, there are definitely practices you can implement. Um, and I, I think there are many people that are uh, inspired and motivated when they hear stories of others uh, kind of standing up for what's ethical and what's, what's right. Um, but on a, on a broader level, I do think this is why we need structural changes and policy changes as well, um, because individual motivation is not, is not going to get us all the way there. Um, and so uh, it's really tough because I think there's this, this total misalignment of, of incentives right now in tech and particularly in, uh, in venture capital and in the, the emphasis also on, on metrics and kind of having these metrics around, uh, you know, advertising revenue and click-through rates um, can often incentivize really uh, kind of negative consequences for society. And uh, I think for many companies, even if there are people there that want to do the right thing, it can be hard if you're always fighting your business model. You mentioned and that's kind of where the, the need for like policy and structural changes is. Definitely. You mentioned uh, structural changes. Uh, there's, there's a lot of finger pointing that happens in the industry. Top, top level management will yeah. point to the engineers, so on and so forth. Who, who should really be conscious and who should be held responsible? Or who yeah, should hold? Is, who should take hold of the responsibility? If I may put it like that. This is tough, and, um, and Dana Boyd talks about this of that. You know, even prior to computers, uh, bureaucracy has often been used to for people to evade responsibility. And um, you know, in an extreme example, we saw this in Nazi Germany of kind of a lot of uh, 
officials just saw them as bureaucrats and were able to kind of point to, to others um, on responsibility. And unfortunately, today's algorithmic systems are kind of just extending that bureaucracy mm-hmm. um, and making it. And so, you know, there have been cases of their algorithms that can be used to screen uh, tenants, uh, you know, a, land, a landlord could use. And so, um, you know, the, and I, seen cases where, you know, like a black man was denied uh, being able to rent this apartment, even though he had a very stable job. And the landlord was like, oh, you know, it's not not my decision. This is what the algorithm told me. Um, and so we're, we're getting a lot of that in different areas. Um, and, and then within companies, you get that as well of uh, so many companies are just, you know, these really complex systems in different siloed areas. Um, and so it's uh, it's, 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 it's a tough problem. It's not what humans are, are good at. Um, you definitely you definitely need senior leadership taking responsibility and making ethics a priority. Um, but I think, I think the first step is kind of recognizing that, um, uh, even recognizing that we're kind of creating these systems where, where nobody feels responsible. Yeah, the, the other part of the problem is how do we create a open culture. I, I work at a startup with this is a problem. So I'm the wrong person to ask this question. But uh, how do we come up with a culture where uh, no one is afraid to speak up when they see a problem? Yeah, so I mean, that needs to be modeled, because I mean, it is true that in many, uh, many startups, it's uh, or not just startups, many, many companies in general, it's not safe to speak up. Um, and so I think many people that are worried about that, their, their fear may, may very well be justified. Um, so I do think you need to kind of see the example coming from leaders speaking up. Um, and also even incentivizing, I've heard of uh, kind of proposals of you know, giving a reward to an engineer that raises an ethical concern, uh, but kind mm. of building that into a, incentives. Um, and it's, it's really tough because there's often this focus on doing everything as fast as possible in tech, um, but to take the time to stop and reflect on what potential ethical issues are or take the time to investigate a potential ethical issue um, in a, in a culture that prizes speed above all else, that's not going to be, you know, that's going to be seen as a negative. And so you do have to kind of address that. Again, the structural uh, part of it comes into picture. Again, yes. Again. Yes. Yeah. It always kind of comes back to the structural part. Yeah. Uh, there's another issue that you've raised uh, and it does exist the gender imbalance in teams or otherwise I'm ashamed of this as well. My podcast has a 10% uh, women representation mm. in the heroes that I've interviewed, but so that that's a problem that I'm contributing to, but how do you think we can improve or solve it? Yeah, so it, it, it takes effort. Um, so yeah, definitely kind of, uh, yeah, it's good to, to, to recognize the problem and then to, to realize that you need to, to put effort um, into it. And this needs to be kind of an ongoing process too. And um, I think a lot of companies um, kind of wait too late, you know, until they already kind of have a big team. I mean, even if, even when you're at the point of when you're ready to hire, in a sense, it's almost too late. Like ideally you would start before, before you're even hiring anyone. Um, in, a, in a company context, kind of the number one advice I want to give is to, to treat the women and people of color, particularly black and Latinx and indigenous employees really well now. So really to focus on the employees you already have. And if you treat them well and give them opportunities to advance, um, um, but to, to kind of think about like, what can you do to make your environment appealing so that people, people will want to work there um, is a key. Um, another key, and this, I mean, this is, uh, this is tough. Um, uh, in the United States, uh, there's studies that, uh, I can't remember, the average, 
the average white person I think has it's either zero or one black friends. I think it's maybe zero, <laughs> zero black friends um, that we just are kind of very um, um, uh, segregated and particularly white people are able to kind of uh, not have close relationships with people of color unless they're being very intentional about it. Um, and since so much hiring that happens in startups and tech companies is through friends and is through your social networks, I think to always be working on trying to diversify your social network and doing that in a, you know, a, a meaningful and genuine way of really just trying to build friendships for the long haul. Um, but I think, you know, I think it's understandable that people want to hire their friends and hire people mm -hmm. they trust. Uh, but there's kind of a lot of inertia working against us. And so uh, you kind of need to be working on, on diversifying your, your social network. I, I think there, there are also two sides to the problem. Like, uh, I don't think this is a good approach, but many people, they, what they do is uh, we need a woman on the panel. So let us go out and invite one. The other one yeah. is, hey, maybe I'm biased towards my community. Should I look outside of it? Uh, there are talented people outside of our communities as well. Yes. Yeah, no, there's true. Yes, there's definitely talent outside our communities and so ways to, and, and, and this is something that I think we need to do more at Fast AI too, is kind of how can we be diversifying our, our community further? Um, yeah, and, and to, to have the, the connections and the invites be, be meaningful as well. Um, yeah, I have been invited for panels where I'm like, you know, I'm not even really related to that topic. It, yeah, it makes me feel like they're just asking me because I'm a woman or yeah um so again speaking of community there's a question from the community what advice uh, would you have for a woman trying to navigate deep learning field as a newbie uh, they sometimes feel afraid to ask a question or clarification because it sounds uh, stupid or basic yeah, so this is a, this is a tough one. I wanted I wanted to just acknowledge that tension. That um, I mean, one asking questions is super important, um, but that um, also it is true that sometimes um, people will judge you, particularly if you're from an underrepresented group when you ask questions. Um, and I feel like I feel like we see this on Twitter every so often. You know, there'll be a movement of of um, software engineers and perhaps predominantly white or male software engineers saying how they have to Google basic things. Um, and then, uh, you know, a black woman software engineer will point out like, you know, I couldn't publicly admit to this because people would really judge me. Um, and so that there is, uh, uh, people are perceived differently when they ask questions. Um, and so um, I actually don't have a, a great answer to this question, but just wanted to acknowledge the tension that uh, I definitely hope you're getting your questions answered um, and that you find uh, kind of safe communities to, to ask them in, but recognizing that, yeah, sometimes in the workplace, maybe, maybe there uh, uh, would be negative repercussions in certain groups. Uh, if, if I may chime in as unqualified as I am to answer that question, but uh, we, we recently completed the fourth run of the course and I, I posted a lot of questions. I would really feel uh, shy to ask the questions. I'd feel all of the, those were stupid, but they, they got a lot of uh, likes, the, the uh, approach that we follow on the forum. So I, I think oh, great. Yeah. There's, there's, there's also one hesitation to just asking questions. Uh, oh, yeah. No, I think very everybody, everybody feels it. Yes, I think everybody can, can feel scared about asking questions. And yeah, and I think anything you can do also um, as somebody listening to questions to kind of you know, affirm that there's there's no stupid question, that any question is a good one to, to go out of your way to help others or, or ways that we can all kind of encourage a, 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 a culture of asking questions. But you're, you're absolutely right that I think everybody sometimes, maybe even often, yeah, worries about the questions they ask. 
and like you said just just mentioning the small word this is a great question or just liking the question also is is a great incentive to the person yes. as well asking the question. yes yeah so uh, you you teaching us all about ethics uh, we we're pretty aware of it but how do we get uh, someone from the outside world some uh, researcher who's let's say just focus on uh, improving a model or improving their personal skills how do we convince them to also divert some of their time towards these important issues yeah again that's tough i mean i think there are people that are convinced when they see the societal implications and that learning more can help them um uh, but again, there are also structural issues, and I think that uh, that some sometimes it comes back to uh, many of these ethics issues end up being very interdisciplinary, and it's very very important that we be drawing from kind of the social sciences and the humanities and how we approach them. Um, and, and I'm most familiar with the U.S., but there's often been this kind of exalting STEM. Uh, over other fields and in the tech industry, kind of exalting coding and math skills over other types of skills and other types of expertise. And so some of what ha- needs to happen, I think, is being able to, to recognize and value um, other areas and other skills more um, for someone with a very technical background to recognize the importance of humanities and social science expertise and the uh, kind of need for that in exploring ethical issues and addressing them. Yeah, um, I think one of the ways you mentioned is just incentivizing uh, some some institute incentivize when someone brings up a topic. But second uh, second part just being aware of the problem. Yes, yeah, and you're right. I know that's a great one too about incentivizing and um, and I, I did have a student who had worked at a, a healthcare tech company who said that you know they had a process in place where you could raise a potential ethical issue and then they had a specific team that would investigate it. Um, for you and that they really liked that uh, process of kind of feeling like somebody would look into this. And the, the student that told me this had had raised ethical issues twice. And he said once it turns out it was not actually an issue, but there was, you know, there's no negative repercussion at all about raising something that turns out to not be an issue. Cause I think the company was glad to just be investigating um, and to, to try to catch things earlier. Okay. Um, now I want to switch gears towards another topic that you educated us on: uh, blogging and projects. Ah, um, yes, yes. Thank you for inspiring all of us. Most of us wouldn't have even started blogging without your advice. Um, the, most people start with uh, projects and blog posts that are low-hanging fruits. Uh, how do we start seeking more difficult problems? Because again, that's where people get uncomfortable. Uh, so, I mean, one thing I think it's okay to move incrementally and to start with a, a simple project and then think about ways to expand it or make it more complicated. Um, I think also to, and this, I guess, kind of goes back to your earlier, one of your earlier questions. Um, like, I love it when people write blog posts about things that didn't work and what they got errors on, because I think there's so much that we learn from that of just hearing from somebody else of, yeah, what didn't work for them in a, in a project. Uh, but I think people are often more reluctant to share that sort of information. Um, and so kind of whatever we can do as a community to encourage kind of also people sharing the not just the success stories, but kind of the failures of, you know, this is where I totally got stuck or, you know, this is an approach that I thought would work and I tried it and it didn't. Um, but I do think we learn a lot as a community from, from those. 
it's a superficial metric, but my most viewed article is one where I had shared that I failed the Google AI residency interview. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you for your openness and sharing that too. Like, I think that that, uh, you know, takes bravery to share, but I think it really resonates with people. Like people, it's something that everybody can relate to kind of experiences like that. Yeah. Uh, so coming to uh, what, what would be your best advice for finding a project to contribute uh, to while going through fast A? Something that maybe can become an incremental uh, problem. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's so many things that would be good projects. Um, so, you know, really, I mean, so definitely if there's something that you're already interested in or a data set you already have, that can be great. Uh, but even if there isn't, I, I feel like I often talk to students that are kind of trying to find the perfect project or trying to find a project that nobody has ever done before. And I would want to encourage people that you know, even if you're using a data set that other people have used or a project where other people have done something similar, uh, that you can still learn a ton by doing that and that you're still going to have your own unique spin on it and you can still kind of take it in a different direction. Um, I mean, the more you can kind of align it with a, a background interest of yours, I think that can be helpful, but it's also, it's okay if you don't feel like you have a passion aside from, uh, aside from deep learning to, uh, to kind of be applying it to. There are also a lot of advices that uh, you both mentioned uh, while running the course that, that also become interesting projects, uh, interesting endpoints. Yes, yeah. So uh, this is a final question. Uh, you and Jeremy both have given us so much. How, how can we contribute to the back to the mission? What can we do better? What, what should we be doing to help the mission? Um. Yeah, and I want to say, I mean, you've done a ton as well, Sonia. I, I love your blog post and the podcast. It's great, kind of every everything you do for the community. Um, I would just say, you know, anything, so definitely answering the questions of others. And so kind of answering questions in the forums, helping others. Uh, uh, yeah, anything, anything you can um, uh, kind of, you know, writing a thorough walkthrough of of how you, how you did something. Um, I think kind of, yeah, just teaching and helping others is a way to help the community and also promoting, you know, caring and compassionate behavior. And like you were saying before, kind of even the simple act of liking somebody's question or saying that's a great question can be really, uh, really affirming and helpful. If, if I can deframe that, uh, even me personally, me, <laughs> I've been treated as a future good deep learning practitioner by Rachel Thomas and Jeremy Howard, and that's that's the best feeling on the community. And I think, uh, at least on the fast A community, that's that's a feeling that everyone tries to foster. Yes, yeah, yeah, like yeah, fostering that feeling of that um, you know everyone has so so much potential, um, and, and yeah, an encouragement about uh, when things don't work out. Um, and this is maybe a little bit related, but a, a story I like to tell from college is uh, the first time I tried to take real analysis, which is kind of a core area of math and was required for the math major. Um, some of this was, I think, the, the, the teacher, uh, but I got into the class and I was miserable and I had no idea what was happening. And I can't remember, it was only like the first or second week of school. I like came home from the library at like 3 a.m. crying and I was just like, this class is terrible. And my roommates were like, you need to, you need to drop this. And I was really concerned because I was just like, oh, you need this to be a math major. Um, and when I went to my advisor, who, who was a math professor, um, she was like, you know, she's like, Rachel, this wasn't your year. She's like, you know, you're going to take this course again next year. You'll do great. Um, you know, you can, you can do this. It's just like, you know, isn't the right time for you. Um, and that was, it was really encouraging to me. 
uh, how she kind of framed that as, you know, it's not a failure that you're dropping this class and that you're going to do it again later. Um, and it ended up, uh, I took it again the next year and got an A and ended up focusing on that even um, in my PhD and my quals. It was an area I ended up loving. Um, and so uh, kind of reminding people that even if you do have a really bad or discouraging experience, that's not, you know, a statement on what you're capable of in the future. And maybe, you know, this just isn't, isn't the right time, um, but that you can return to kind of any topic um, again at a different point and, um, and maybe you will love it then. Um, so I think kind of uh, to, to be able to reframe kind of failure when things don't work is, is helpful as well. I was hoping you would have scored an A+. Plus. <laughs> <laughs> Rachel, thank you so much for all of your contributions to the community. And thank you so much for all you've done for the past year community. Uh, before we end the call, uh, I know your Twitter is math underscore Rachel. And there's the website fast.a. Any other platform that you'd like to mention? Um. No, those are, oh, and then also the, the course, uh, course.fast.ai, of course, um, in, in the forums, forums.fast.ai um, is, is a way to kind of connect with others. Um, but yeah, those are, yeah, the kind of the main, main platforms I'm on. Okay, awesome. Thank you so much, Rachel, for joining oh, me on the you, podcast. Thank you, Sanya. No, this was great. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to give it a review or feel free to shoot me a message. You can find all of the social media links in the description. If you like the show, please subscribe and tune in each week to Chai Time Data Science.